Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Material Matters with Grant Gibson. I can't quite believe it, but the show is 101 episodes old now. However, for listeners who might be new to all this, the idea is I speak to a designer, maker, artist or architect about a material or technique with which they're intrinsically linked and discover how it changed their lives and careers. Before we start, I'm delighted that the headline sponsor for this series of the podcast and the upcoming Material Matters Fair, taking place from the 20th to the 23rd of September at Barge House, Oxo Tower Wharf, is Burt Frank. The premium British lighting brand, based in London and Birmingham, will mark its 10th anniversary this month at the London Design Festival, with new product launches that celebrate the considered use of exceptional materials, in addition to reimagining some of its most popular designs into new forms. Together, these launches outline an exciting new chapter for the brand that has championed the globally recognised hallmarks of British design, quality, craftsmanship and innovation since its inception. So, my guest this week is Marie Carlyle. Marie is CEO and co-founder of social enterprise and material matters exhibitor Goldfinger. The organisation opened its doors at the foot of West London's Trellick Tower in 2013 and makes high-end furniture from wood that has often been reclaimed in its workshop. Not only that, but it has a showroom and cafe as well as an academy that teaches marginalised young people the craft of woodworking through its apprenticeship programme. It's a fascinating and I think important place. Marie, how are you? Thank you very much for doing this. Hi, Gran. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Thank you for having me. You don't look like you're in the UK. Can I ask where you might be? I'm actually in uh, France, where I'm from, where a lot of my family are. So I'm working from here at the moment in the south of France. Very nice. So we're going to cheat a little bit because we're talking over Zoom. Maybe you can describe the Goldfinger Workshop and Café for our listeners and how the setup kind of works. Sure. Yeah. So um, we have a very unique space underneath the Trellick Tower that is 4,000 square foot. Mm. And on the ground floor, we have this amazing community cafe run by our partner chefs, um, who are Sicilian, Penella, with whom we run our, our monthly food initiative uh, called the People's Kitchen. We will get into that. Yeah, exactly. A bit more on that later. But that's really, in many ways, the heart of it, bringing people in. We then have our, our showroom and offices uh, on the same level. And then underneath is the true beating heart of the organization, which is the workshop. We have a 2,000 square foot workshop with anywhere between four to six makers working in there. And we also run our academy programs in there. So um, last week, we just had our Goldfinger Academy traineeship programs where we get young people out of work and education into our workshops to come and see it. So it's uh, all in one, which is very unique and, uh, and always fun for people to come and see that. It is a fascinating place. There's no question. I mean, I'm intrigued by your location because Trellick Tower, famously designed by Erno Goldfinger, opened in 1972. It's either seen as wildly bombastic or iconic, depending on your point of view. And it's a building whose reputation has been transformed since it, it opened. It was wildly loathed. It's become or became really hugely fashionable in the 90s. I think I'm correct in saying that the majority of the apartments are social housing but there are a significant number of privately owned flats. And I guess I'm interested to know how the building shaped your brand. I mean, obviously it's responsible for your name in some part, but how else has it affected what you do? You're so right. I mean, it, it really has been our muse in so many ways. It really shaped the business. Yes, um, we had an idea for what the business model around 
reuse, around design, around social impact and the circular economy, but so much of it has really been driven by our home. And I think one of the ways in which it has, other than obviously give us our our name and the inspiration we've taken from this architect who was also a furniture designer Mm. himself, is really the effect, as you said, on you know people's perceptions. It was hated and it is now loved, or at least by many, enough for it to be grade two listed. And how quickly perception can change just when enough people decide it is of value. And just how mm. sometimes arbitrary what we deem as waste is. One of our, our mottos at Goldfinger is waste is just a resource in the wrong hands. Yeah. You know, waste is really just a man-made concept. When you look at nature, it it doesn't exist. It's it's very, very cyclical. And I think the Trellick Tower shows us that, how how even, you know, a building that can be hated and, you know, threat about tearing it down can go from that to being a grade two listed building that is now a treasured monument. And I think that's really what inspired us. If that can happen with a building in less than 30 years, what can we do with in terms of the circular economy and making waste grade two listed, making waste truly desirable, aspirational, and really, and that's where that kind of injection of design and creativity and craft came into our business model to elevate what others are calling waste, put in inverted commas. Very good. I mean, I think what Trellick shows is that our notions of beauty are, are fluid. Exactly. And they do change and they can change quite quickly. I mean, interestingly, my guest for the hundredth episode of this podcast was Michael Merritt, who's a huge Goldfinger fan and has done products based around Goldfinger's work. So I don't just throw the shit together is what I've decided <laughs> as you were saying that. Um, I mean, can we talk a little bit about the area as a whole? Because the Royal Borough of Kensington and Chelsea has come up in this podcast before when we talked about Grenfell Tower. There's a huge disparity of wealth in the area. It contains some of the richest people in the country, some of the richest people in the world, but there's also huge poverty. Are you trying to bridge that divide with what you do? Very much so. I think that's another part of our business model, which has been inspired more than the building, but by that whole locality. And North Kensington is really the locality I speak about here. And you've uh, described it very aptly, this sort of tale of two cities, extreme wealth next to extreme poverty. And we really do aim to be a bridge between those two communities rather than usually quite polarizing or alienating or just apathy, just no contact whatsoever. And we do this through so many ways, but our, our, our People's Kitchen is a very good example. On the one hand, we're you know connecting so the more affluent types to be volunteers and donors and really actively involved in this uh, meal program, but then the local residents, uh, residents of Trellick Tower and all the neighboring social housing blocks like Hazelwood and, and Homefield come to have a free meal. And then everybody sits at a table together. It's not sort of people on different levels. There's very much a sense of coming together and there's a lot of um, meaning and value that is shared between those two communities. And likewise with our academy. So on the one hand, you know, we are obviously selling our products, which are on the high end design, you know, luxury products side of things, but then it's creating jobs and training opportunities for young people in that borough. And so again, it's a really about bringing, bringing those populations together. Well, we'll get into the other aspects of what you do a bit later on, I suspect, but I'm keen because of the nature of this podcast and, and its title to talk about the workshop in the first instance, which seems to me to be the bedrock of everything that you do. Now, I've, I've read a few pieces that describe what you did in the early days as, as upcycling which isn't necessarily some, a term that is used that much any longer. Now you're known for working with wood, and I'm wondering why that material. Yes, wood is really our passion. And I mean, it has to start with 
the fact that um, I love wood personally, I love trees. I've always been uh, very uh, fascinated and taken. I think trees have always been my sanctuary and, and sacred place. Um, I grew up in rural Hong Kong, which most people don't believe exists, but it does. And um, <laughs> spent my afternoons after school climbing trees and picking seashells on the beach. And I've always found them just fascinating creatures, really, beings. And um, I then met my co-founder at university and he was a really keen woodworker. And so the two things came together. I think a wood was maybe had gone through a bit of a period where people were thinking, oh, it's not such a noble material. It's a bit rough. It's a bit this. It's a bit passe. And actually, we just felt that from, um, from a circular economy perspective, wood is infinitely recyclable. So there's something, you know, solid timbers reveal, you know, you sand the surface, you get a new surface. It's it's so incredibly versatile and lends itself to the circular economy with good high quality waste, solid timber. There is really infinite possible reuses, mm. which is not the case with a lot of uh, man-made composites. So that was one of them, but then it's just the beauty of it, the natural character of wood I'm a yoga teacher on the side and have always been fascinated by well-being. I know your Instagram page. You are very bendy. <laughs> I mean, I hope that's all right to say, but okay. blimey, you can do, <laughs> it's extraordinary. Yeah, so exactly. That's a, another passion. Um, but that connection with well-being is very much something that I, I think Wood contributes to. I, you know, the more I've got into it, I've realized just, you know, there is, there is a, a natural tendency. We gravitate towards trees, towards woods, towards forests, whether indoors or outdoors, because it makes us feel good. And there's countless research that I love, you know, from Japan, from Norway, a, a lot of Scandinavian countries have really looked at it in depth and seeing that connection with our vitals as things like blood pressure actually staying stable or even decreasing when in contact with a wooden piece of furniture versus it increasing with metal or plastic, which is just incredible. Mm. That's something that really, it's a sort of a full circle. Environmentally, it's, it's a really interesting material from, yeah, as I said, about the circular economy, but also there's a well-being aspect, which I think has been overlooked. And it's finally kind of becoming a lot more center stage where interior design and architecture for well-being is taking center stage again, which is great. Yeah. yeah. And you have this manifesto on the wall of your showroom. I kind of feel one of us should read it. It's probably better coming from you, quite frankly. I'd be delighted. Do you know it off by heart or do you have it to hand or... Do you keep it with you at all times? I do have it to hand. I do know most of it by heart. We have it in our showroom like a good manifesto. It really is the kind of beating heartbeat of the business. And uh, we actually wrote it as a team together during the lockdown. It was a lockdown manifesto. Yeah, lockdown manifesto. That was really when we consolidated mm. the who are we and why do we do what we do and why do we care? Mm. And it really has anchored what we do, our strategy, you know, how we how we launch our products. And so, yes, I'd be, I'd be very happy to read it to you. Well, let's hear it then, Marie. Absolutely. It's all yours. So... From tree to table, our future depends on trees. Use wood thoughtfully. Your table was once a tree. Someday it could be something else. Make sure your wood hasn't traveled too far. Reuse where possible. Demand that it's sustainably grown. Buy less, use your hands more. Question how things are made and what they're made from. Learn how to make something. It's revolutionary. Invest in the traditions of craftsmanship. Good design made well lasts longer. Invite others to your table. Enduring beauty is meant to be shared. Create spaces that feed the soul. Let's reset our relationship to the living world. Our everyday choices have power. 
choose as if all life depends on it. Very good. So this is the mantra your brand lives by. Indeed, 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 exactly. And trees are, you know, that exactly at the at the core of it. They inspire us and guide us in many ways. So um, yes, and it's often a resource that is largely undervalued in our supply chains. And so we're really wanting to change that. So you source your wood from different places, don't you? I mean, some of it is reclaimed. You've talked in the past in interviews about teak lab benches you received from Imperial College London. Other sources you've described as tree cycled, which isn't a term I'd necessarily come across before. So what is tree cycling? So tree cycling is really uh, a term that we have come up and, and hope to garner more adoption for, for trees that have fallen for natural reasons, that fallen or are having to be felled for reasons outside of furniture production or, or use. They are coming down because of either disease, think of ash dieback, Dutch elm disease, urban development, and weather-related conditions, whether it's droughts or storms. Amazingly, in London alone, there are about 5,000 mature trees that are felled or fall for all of these wow. reasons. And do you want to hazard a guess what happens to them, most of them, if it weren't for this intervention? Well, I would guess <laughs> uh, they're probably burned. Indeed, indeed, which is just harrowing. It's, uh, it's sad that many people can answer that question because it really shouldn't be happening. Um, but yes, they're burned for biofuel, they're burned for biomass. There's all mm. sorts of reasons why that is happening. But on the other hand, Britain is the second largest importer of timber after China in the world. Which is after China, which is madness. I mean, it's just bizarre, isn't Insane. it? Insane. So yeah. Ronan Britain, which is a body that manages, you know, responsibly managed woodlands in the UK, that over 80% of timber in the UK is imported. And then on the other hand, we are burning the trees that are on our doorstep. Why does this make any sense? And so we are trying to reduce our reliance on timber imports and make sure that we are utilizing the trees that are falling down naturally. So that's tree cycling. Who do you have to go to to find these trees that would otherwise be burned? Are these local councils? How does the wood arrive to you? So we've developed some fantastic partnerships with small organizations and equally passionate organizations like ourselves, such as Fallen and Felled, whom you may have heard of, who dedicate their business to that, the processing of the timber. And so what we do as a collaborative is try to join up public and private landowners. So yes, councils, but also larger estates. There's there are a lot of different actors in that to try to connect them with the sawmills who can then connect them to people who are selling it. Because that is the bit that has disappeared in the country is that supply chain to actually convert that resource into something that is sellable. Because when the tree comes down, it's just a problem. It's not actually a resource. It's just someone was like, get rid of this thing. And it's very costly to get it to a stage where it is seasoned, it is, you know, cut into planks. And that's the tricky bit in the in the supply chain that we've had to really pull together a lot of resources and just a lot of joint efforts really between small organizations who are who are trying to go against the grain and make sure that there's enough British timber and making sure that it's sequestered in the timber as furniture for generations to come. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you've mentioned Grown in Britain. I know you work with them. Can we talk about your relationship with that organization? Because that's beyond tree cycling, that you do more with them, right? Yeah, exactly. Tree cycling is a next level. It's a challenging one to certify because a lot of these trees are sort of out of woodlands. Uh, they're urban. They're, uh, they're not managed in that classic way. Whereas Grown in Britain is responsibly managed woodlands um, across the UK. So it's, it's like 
the FSC and PFC labels that we are very familiar with that provides the sustainability and the legality credentials of it. But what it does on top of that, which I think is so fundamentally vital and lacking from the other frameworks, is it gives you provenance. It's going to tell you exactly where that tree came from. Because the problem with some of the other frameworks is that your wood could have been sustainably grown and legally grown and, and felled and logged and et cetera. However, it could be coming from the other side of the world. So there's a big part of the sustainability yeah. equation, which is transport miles, which has been removed from it. So customers know exactly where their furniture came from. Exactly. Where their tree once grew. Exactly. So how do you work? There are commissions for architects and designers, but you produce your own ranges. Both. Um, predominantly the former. The bulk of our work is collaborating with interior designers and architects, working on client-led briefs. Most recently, we worked with Holland Harvey Architects, and we've worked with numerous times on uh, lots of amazing projects, including Inhabit Hotels, uh, a very sustainability and wellness-driven hotel. There's two of them, actually, one in Paddington and, and one near Hyde Park. But most recently, um, we worked on the Tate Modern new restaurant, The Corner Project, um, which was very, very exciting, all made from tree-cycled ash. So all ash from London and beyond, um, UK definitely, um, that were at risk of being affected by ash dieback. And um been transformed into this timeless furniture that now sits in the Tate Modern's new restaurant. Well, I think it's worth pointing out that this is high-end furniture, isn't it? I mean, I think there's there's always a danger that when you talk about reclaimed mm. wood, people kind of think it's cheap. And I, maybe upcycling has that kind of reputation, possibly unfairly as well, I would posit. So yeah, how do you persuade people that what you're making actually is valuable? In the early years, that was the biggest challenge. When my co-founder moved on and I, I took over about 20, 2017, 2018, we really stripped out our upcycling from our vernacular. I was like, no more, no more upcycling. <laughs> there are connotations with that. And I, it, it's, it's a shame because it's a good word. There's nothing wrong with the word in itself. I was going to say there are upcyclers shaking I their know, fists at their exactly. radios It's, it's right a now. great word. It's a wonderful <laughs> concept. It is what we do. However, there is a connotation of mm. not design-led things a bit thrown together, recuperating and salvaging in a way that isn't necessarily very thoughtful, even though it, it has a place. It's not to criticize the upcycling movement or all the fantastic craftspeople that sort of operate in that field, but it's we really wanted to have this design-led approach to working with material that just happened to have had another life before, but really designing from scratch. So the final product looks completely new, albeit perhaps with a bit more character because the wood, you know, has this patina. But often, I mean, we sand it back. No one will ever be able to tell if we did a kind of test, which ones are reclaimed and which ones are grown in Britain or tree cycled. No one can tell. And that's got to do with the high level of craftsmanship that we and skill and, and, and talent that we have in the workshop. So how many people are in that workshop? Um, ranging, yeah, around four, more or less, a mi right. mix of designers and makers, some straddling both. It's a relatively small workshop, but um, we punch above our weight in terms of what we can produce in that small space. Do you have a large design team? I know you've, in the past, you've worked with the likes of Arup and Tom Dixon. Initially, we had no design team. And so we were always collaborating right. with large designers that 
liked what we did. We were very lucky. Yeah, Tom Dixon, our, our neighbor, when he was still at Portobello Dock, who is a local of W10 and you know passionate supporter of the North Kensington community, offered to design a collection for us, which was wonderful, which we launched at London Design Festival. Wow, seven years ago. <laughs> Incredible. And um, since, yes, Arup as well, they actually approached us amazingly and were looking for a circular economy partner to create a collection initially from glass bottle waste through the Crown Estates. And in the end, it was actually... It pivoted to actually, let's look at our plastic bottle waste, milk bottle waste right. from their offices. And this was back in the day when we were a bit more multi-material. We've focused a lot more. So yes, we did collaborate with a lot of designers at the beginning when it was really just throwing things at the wall, seeing what would stick. And in 2018 was the first moment that we hired our first designer in-house and since then have grown that design team to three designers that straddle many other roles. I mean, you know, they're not designing in isolation, they're project managing, they're mm. uh, managing the other makers and client management. You know, they're um, in a small business. It's always um, many hats for one person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you still work with external designers or is it all done in-house? We do occasionally. We haven't done a big collaboration with a big designer ever since we brought a lot of the design in-house because we felt that it was important for us to establish what is Goldfinger? Establish our own aesthetic signature and our design principles before you start collaborating with someone, because otherwise it's just, you know, in the past, it really was just the big designer saying, let's do this. And we were the fabricator. Whereas over the last four to five years, we've really tried to establish ourselves as a designer. Um, and so we've done less on the collaborations with uh, collections, but we what we have been doing is collaborating with architects and interior designers to develop really beautiful products like the Tate collection, like the Inhabit collections, which have been done in partnership with Holland Harvey. We've partnered with Nicola Harding on the interior design side to deliver some office furniture for a really cool business called Scape. So yes, collaboration is very much and partnership is at the heart of our business model and is very much how we've grown. Very good. I mean, the workshop is obviously the lifeblood of the organization. And of course, as a result, the showroom makes complete sense. But as you've alluded to, you're also fascinated with food. So why set up the cafe in the first instance? So yeah, the cafe was always part of the plan. It's not something that came later or that we thought this is a good idea. Let's do it. It's a mixture of two things. One, I'm half French, half Chinese. I'm obsessed with food. So that's a, a big, 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 big influence. I think food is an incredible connector of people. I think it's how a lot of decisions are made and a lot of connections are started. And we also felt that this was, as a result, the best way to be welcomed into this community. We were outsiders coming into a very tightly knit community that is North Kensington and that we wanted to have something that was for everyone. We realized that our furniture wasn't affordable to everybody and that could be very alienating to have this sort of design-led thing that with very expensive furniture, um, even though in the early days it was more vintage furniture, but nevertheless, there were two markets, two audiences. And the cafe really was what we wanted that to be a place where everyone was welcome, where everybody could have a cup of coffee and have a lovely plate of food, simple, homemade. It took a while to find the right partner, but we have had this partnership with our Italian uh, chef. Panella for the last seven years, actually the same time we did the collection with Tom Dixon. Um, it was a big year for us. And they have really um, made that place a community hub and a, and a place of coming together for the community. 
which is really lovely to see. Because didn't you start doing residencies, like chef residencies? Exactly. Yeah, how did that work? Initially, it was a pop-up sort of model. And in fact, with him, it was meant to be a pop-up, but it's just worked so well that we kept going on and going on. And the idea was in the social enterprise model was that we would give them a fully serviced restaurant space. And in exchange, they would run our charitable initiative, which is our once a month community meal. Yes. So that was really the model. And so the first few years, we went through at least seven businesses uh, one of them has actually gone on to do lots of great things. It's called Redemption. Um, it's an alcohol-free uh, place that I think has a place in Covent Garden now. Many of them were just one-man band, sort of Moroccan cafe or Jamaican chicken shop. I mean, we went from every everything and we just needed to find that sweet spot. It was quite turbulent to have to keep changing the chef. But it must be quite confusing as well for your potential client. Exactly. It didn't work. And we realized we need someone who can really stick with this and really deliver consistent um, service and quality of food. And so it's been a match made in heaven ever since we we found Panella. And I, I believe you've had the food there. And so- have, Very nice it was too. <laughs> can uh, attest to that fact. And everybody loves Italian food, so- <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was not to like. Should we talk about the People's Kitchen? Yes. Because it's cropped up on a number of occasions in the, in the time we've been speaking. It was set up, according to your website, to tackle food waste and social isolation. So how do you go about doing that? What does it do? So every once a month, every third Sunday of the month, there's a very uh, specific cadence to this. We collect surplus food from local bakeries, restaurants, farmers markets, any food establishment that that might have food surplus. We prefer calling it surplus than waste in the food department. And we then cook up a meal all together, volunteer run, led by our chef. Um, it used to be me doing it behind the scenes on the Sunday. We cook up a feast and from five o'clock, the doors open and anybody can come and have a free meal. And everybody sits around this one big long table. We can have about 50 or 60 people at a time. And we invite local musicians, any sort of entertainment. We often have, you know, flowers and it's a really elevated dining experience. It's like a restaurant and really being able to give that experience to people who couldn't necessarily afford it is a really wonderful thing and to, to share a meal with our neighbors. And uh, it's become a real meeting point for a lot of our neighbors who, who come, who really is the most important day in their diary. They look forward to it, not just because of the food, the food's great, but it's because of the social <laughs> connection and the chatting, you know, the having a, a forum where they can come in and it's, it's entirely free. Um, so it's uh, got a special place in our, in our hearts. I hope you're enjoying the episode. This is just to remind you that the Material Matters Fair is nearly here. The event, which is headline sponsored by the British lighting company Bert Frank, runs from the 20th to the 23rd of September at London's Barge House, Oxo Tower Wharf. It will be full of brilliant ideas and wonderful exhibitors. Picking out names is invidious. However, here goes. Solid Wool creates material from the wool of the Herdwick sheep, and Magnus Long's studio will be launching a new wooden suspension light. Modern Synthesis is a biotech company which brings new materials to life. There will be a slew of international exhibitors working in a variety of materials, such as hydro and regular concrete. Meanwhile, the likes of Biomatters, Silk Lab, Mycelium Lab and Material Magic will be illustrating how design can work with nature. If craft is your thing, then look out for work by the likes of Anna Bridgewater, also known as Avalon, Mixed Metals, Gareth Neal, leather expert Bill Amberg and The Wicker Story. And there are features from the likes of our designer of the year, Pearson Lloyd. Danish designer Tanya Kirst will have her extraordinary textiles made from hemp and citrus peel in our entrance hall. 
The Wood Awards will be unveiling its shortlist while Insight Publishing has put together The Works Place, a space that showcases the latest and most innovative thinking on sustainable office design, circularity and innovation. It's been designed by Area and look out for brands including Flock and Matter. And finally, Isola, the Milan-based design platform, will host a new exhibition on the third floor of Barge House. Nothing Happens If Nothing Happens will feature emerging designers using regenerative resources and repurposing waste materials. And did I mention there's a talks programme featuring Michael Young and the always lively Negroni Talks and a bunch of other brilliant stuff? I thought not. It's terribly exciting. Oh, and it's also free for trade. You just need to register by going to our website, materialmatters.design. There's also an Eventbrite link in the blurb that comes with this episode. See you there. Is there a relationship between the people that buy your high-end furniture and then your people's kitchen? Do the two different, I guess, very different groups meet? A lot of the people who buy the furniture come and volunteer very often or donate food or money to the running of it. So yes, no, there is a lot and often we'll come and sit and eat. And we really do invite everybody to come and sit down and eat. Uh, And so it's really lovely to see conversations. And a lot of our clients, uh, the clients of our furniture will say, you know, it's it's one of the most heartwarming and kind of life-affirming experiences they've had. A lot of people bring their children to come and experience what it's like. And during COVID, we had to pivot this fabulous thing to being a meal delivery service. Well, I was going to say, presumably this model had to change during the pandemic. How did it change? Um, well, March 2020 crept up and thought, oh my, we, you know, most of our beneficiaries are elderly, often quite frail. There's absolutely no way we can gather them. So we cancelled March, but then realized we were removing a vital service. Food poverty and social isolation were spiraling out of control, especially in our part of the borough. And so we got our minds together, our board, our advisors, our fantastic network of clients and managed to fundraise enough to pivot to being a meal delivery service. Got our chef on board. He said, okay, if it's um, all the same meal, and you know, at this point it wasn't about the food waste, I can make about 200, 250 meals every Sunday. And so we did it as a weekly Sunday dinner. Oh, weekly, wow. Weekly during the national lockdowns. And so that went on for quite a while. And um, that really also was a very um, rewarding experience for a lot of the volunteers who you know, can be so removed from the reality of how people live. Some people live in London and to be able to have these wonderful conversations with these very um, interesting people who have lived in the Trellick Tower since it opened and have seen the neighborhood change and have all these incredible stories. And we realized that part of the service wasn't actually just dropping off the food and running away to your next door, but actually having a chat because we realized some of them really just wanted to have a chat and would would want to chat for 15 minutes. And so that was very much the brief to all the volunteers is don't rush the delivery chat, sit there 10 minutes, have a chat with them on the doorstep. So it became, yeah, doorstep chats was equally valuable. And some of them, the beneficiaries shared that we were the first person they saw that week, which was very sad, but also very, well, glad to be able to have a small, small impact on their lives. So yeah, so that's uh, always invite anybody. The volunteering is, is, uh, it's always getting fully booked. It's now a a privilege to come and volunteer at the people's kitchen. (laughs) (laughs) So the final element of what you do in this extraordinary organization is the academy. So tell me, how does that work? What do you do? So it's evolved over time, but at the heart of it is our Future Makers program, which is really working with young people out of work and education, 
usually between the 16 to 29 age age range, school leavers either dropped out of school or at risk of dropping out of school, um, who are interested in carpentry, in making, in design, in woodworking. We realized through a lot of collaboration with a lot of other charitable organizations in the borough that there's not enough work experience. There's not enough opportunities for young people to actually have a go at being in the workplace and seeing what that job is like. So when people say, what do you want to be when I grow up? They don't know. And, and, and sometimes people have an idea and then they do it. And they're like, I really don't like that. I don't want to be you know, in front of a computer or I do want to be in front of a computer or whatever it might be. And to really give uh, these young people. So we, we host um, a traineeship three times a year. It's a week-long, intensive, hands-on experience where they, they really come away having practical experience in designing in making in working very closely with one of our one of our makers to realize a stool or to build an a-frame um so and and there's a real it's amazing to watch their evolution even by day three it's sort of total transformation from day one how many do you take in we take in up to 10 yeah right. you're usually around five but it's it's quite small groups to give them the attention and it's really you know having as much one-on-one contact with each of them. So yeah, up to up to maybe 30 a year. Wow. And have any stayed on with you? Yeah, we've had um, many that come back. We had one who was a full-time employee for a while and then uh, continued on as a as a freelancer and many of them come back to work with us, which is which is great whether, you know, part-time or fixed term, but we've had many of them come back. Well, the main thing that's also very important is keeping that community alive of the Goldfinger Academy alumni. And having regular check-ins, how are they doing, how we can help them signpost them, because it's it's very much about career guidance and what we can do. You know, we can't employ them all, but we can help introduce them to people, help them with their CV, help them with any confidence building that might be that might be needed. There's a lot of pastoral support as well, the kind of emotional and then it's not just the technical side and off you go. It's a very lovely community. We actually have our fundraiser for this Goldfinger Academy every year. Um, and this year is also our 10 year anniversary. So we're having a a big party for it, which should be really fun. And, and we hope to raise um, funds to be able to do more of this going forward. So it should be great because we'll do an online silent auction as well on our website, featuring a lot of great experiences from design consultations with interior designers to dinner at Soho House and all sorts of fun things. So the auction is actually going to go live during Material Matters. So do stay tuned. Oh, very good. Glad to hear it. <laughs> very happy for you to plug that. That's absolutely fine. <laughs> should we get into your background, Marie? Because you've said you're half French, half Chinese, spent time obviously in rural Hong Kong, but also in Paris. So what did your parents do? Am I right in thinking your father was in luxury? That's right. That's the area you started in as well. It right? is. You initially in the, the luxury exactly. world. Exactly. So was that always going to be your pathway? So I always grew up in that. I grew up in that world. My, my dad uh, started at L'Oreal and then ended up at Gerla and LVMH. And so very much that that world of very in mostly in Hong Kong, but yes, initially in Paris. But doing what for those brands? Doing marketing initially and then moving up into general management. So more on the business side than on the creative side. So I followed in his footsteps and thought marketing was great because it brings together creative and more data-driven business because I loved both and couldn't choose one. And so I started out um, in in marketing in, in various different brands like Shanghai Tang, which is part of the Richemont group at the time, and then Estee Lauder and LVMH as well. And always in marketing and product development, so more in fashion and beauty. 
very different. And if you told my 18-year-old self that I'd be a social entrepreneur working in the circular economy, I would have been like, what are you talking about? Uh, and in the design <laughs> and architecture world, are you sure? Are you sure? It wasn't the obvious path, but there is a thread that runs yeah. through my trajectory, which is, I think, aesthetics, beauty. And then I sort of felt um, a strong calling to do that in a way that was possibly more in line with my values, uh, less resource-intensive, more local, taking care of, yeah, the well-being of the planet and and the people and the communities that we that we work with. So that's what Goldfinger's just been a big experiment in that. Was it clear you were always going to run things as a child? I remember you telling an anecdote on YouTube, or at least I found an anecdote on YouTube, about how you used to organise who had the crayons in your nursery school. That's right. My Is that true? <laughs> Apparently yes. it is true. My mother loves to tell this story <laughs> and embarrass me. I don't know if she's proud or embarrassed, maybe a combination of both. She's quite entrepreneurial herself, actually, being the Chinese one of my parents. My father was French. And uh, yes, apparently in, in some nurseries, I think I was only about two, who really started quite young. I was collecting <laughs> all the crayons, distributing a good amount distributing. to each I see, I see. child, yeah, yeah, yeah. but then keeping all the rest for myself. <laughs> um, so such is the story. But yeah, so there was a sense of equity, but there was definitely a sense of uh, wanting to run things and wanting to delegate. And um, and I think I, I always, yes, I did always know I was always very entrepreneurial and sort of scrappy. I started a babysitting business when I was 11. 11? 11? 11. You were babysitting at 11? <laughs> Who was letting you do this? Believe it or not, I actually started babysitting at nine. And Holy I think about, about this, you know. <laughs> And I, I, there are my parents' friends who I still, you know, I said, do you realize you left me with your one-year-old son when I was nine? Like, you didn't seem nine. You were so mature. You were so responsible. And it, it seemed like, a, and I'm like, and they, they think about it now. But yeah, no, so my babysitting experience started at nine. And then at 11, I thought I was seasoned enough to start a business because I was getting too busy. And my parents only allowed me to babysit on Fridays and Saturdays because I needed to be focused for school. And so I thought, well, I better delegate all the weekday jobs to some of my friends. And uh, hopefully to older friends. Uh, no, same friends, same, same age friends. <laughs> <laughs> same age, no. And everyone was completely fine with it. I think maybe times have changed. I think people now don't. I think they have. Don't, I hope don't, they have. Don't trust their <laughs> six month old with an 11 year old. But um, I did, and I loved it. I absolutely loved it. So anyway, I didn't think I was going to continue, but there was a sense of I loved the being independent, being able to have my own money to go shopping with. I mean, it's not like, I, you know, I'm, I'm very lucky to not need to, but it, it just, there was a sense of pride and wanting to be able to buy my own things and that sense of independence, which really drove me. So yes, funny anecdotes yeah, yeah. from my childhood. <laughs> <laughs> so why did you decide to make the change from luxury to social enterprise? Was there a Damazine moment? There were many. There were many that that all cascaded. Um, so, it, you know, it's it's hard to pinpoint the exact moment. I, I do remember one moment when I worked in luxury. I was working in beauty at the time. And um, I didn't work in the store and... And I remember in my in one of my performance reviews, one of the feedback I got was, you know, I wasn't wearing enough makeup to work. And I thought, wow, <laughs> what am I doing here? <laughs> the value alignment was just so out of whack. You know, it didn't matter that the work, you know, that was being done was good. It was that the makeup levels weren't high. And I, you know, I actually have never been someone who likes wearing a lot of makeup and quite enjoy uh, looking my natural self. 
And that clearly wasn't being valued. And and it just really made me realize I need to get out of here. So that was a bit of a a first wake up moment. I actually then went into the tech industry. I went into a tech startup for four years. So it's not like I jumped ship immediately. I was always very aware that I was entrepreneurial, but I wanted to learn from bigger organizations, from people Uh. more experienced than me. I still, you know, I felt at 22, 23, I had no idea what I was doing. I was very much in this, my 20s are about learning from others. And then I will see what I go and apply it to. And my co-founder was very kind of gung-ho in in starting a business in uh, sustainability and circular economy. And furniture just sort of happened by chance that he loved making and I loved trees. And, you know, it all kind of came together with my background in luxury as well. I'm kind of interested in that, Marie, because, I mean, as, as you say, you started the business in 2013 with your then partner, Oliver Waddington Ball, who's credited on your website. And I'm just wondering what you both brought to the mix initially. Yeah, we're very different personalities, but I think it really was a a, a perfect combination at the, at the beginning because he's incredibly charismatic and incredibly visionary. I mean, he had the vision for the business in many ways as it is today. It stayed true to its ethics about really having a furniture business that is impacting environmentally and socially. And what he thought was this sweet spot is that Wood allows you to do both at the same time. You're saving waste and and it's a great material to train people on. Metal, you know, there are other materials that are really, you know, very tricky and dangerous. You can't just sort of have a go at training someone. So I think that was really the nugget. And then he was absolutely brilliant at setting up so many of the initial partnerships, getting the Royal Borough of Kensington and Chelsea on board. And that's how we ended up in the space that we're at. So he was just incredible at doing a lot of that initial brand building and really selling the vision of really being able to talk big. But I think what I had, and perhaps in more because of my personality, but also because of my experience in in the corporate world is more detail orientation, more appreciation for numbers and data and process and structure and systems. So he was very much the right brain and I was the left brain. And so it worked really well to have those two very different skill sets at the beginning. And then I think once the idea got established, it is sort of that way where sometimes, you know, there's the right person to start it, then there's the right person for the next phase. And then at at some point, I won't be the right person either for the next stage. And so, you know, understanding where your strengths are and knowing when to. And so, um, so yeah, Oliver decided to, to step back in, in 2017 and, and, and continue in the, in the social enterprise world. Uh, And that's when I took over to sort of really put in place more of those structures and systems. Yeah. I was going to ask how the organization has changed in those 10 years, because obviously, you know, we've, we've mentioned upcycling. I mean, you were working with different materials initially, Mm -hmm. Then you hone in on wood. So yeah, how has it developed in those 10 years? We went from being mixed material, you know, material agnostic, anything will do, and and really actually developing our material partner network so extensively to the point that we were becoming an above ground landfill. You know, we were just saying, mm. yes, yes, we'll take it. Bloomberg is clearing out their office. Let's take it. No idea what we'll do with it. Take it, take it, take it. And I remember at the early stages of that going, oh no, oh no, oh no. It's it's great, but it's not. And at the, this was a time when we had a lot more storage space underneath the Trellick Tower. The Trellick Tower, the whole length of it is about the size of a football field. And we had the whole. Oh, wow. 
ground floor pram shed storage of that at one stage, which is yeah. why we were able to say yes to everything. But mm. we were using less than 10% of it. Um, so we had to go through. So that that was the the saying no, learning how to say no to other materials and really focusing on wood. Is that easy, learning how to say no? No, it's very hard. Um, it, it, it's mm. it's it's harder than it seems, but then once you start, it's a, it's like a muscle. Once you start doing it, it becomes easier and easier. <laughs> and, and you realize that, oh God, why was I saying yes to everything? But it does take courage because it feels counterproductive that by saying no, you're going to have more or do better. I think it's, again, very much part of the, the first three years are very much about saying yes to everything. You need to be open. You need to ideate and iterate and it's all, it's, it's all, it's chaos. It's not even organized chaos. And that, and it was, those were the chaotic years, but we figured out a lot what doesn't work and what does work. Then there's that refining and we're still doing it. We still get told we do a lot. And I think there's still uh, a process of learning how to say no with us. You know, are we a bespoke manufacturer? Are we a retailer? Are we a designer? Are we all of the above? And a lot of people still, still tell us, I, you do a lot. <laughs> yes, we do. <laughs> and, um, and so th- there are the- Are you happy to do a lot or would you rather refine? I it? think I, I'm ready to refine it. It's too much. Okay. Yeah. Being perfectly honest. We do it all well, but we are spread so thin and, um, we are a small team at the end of the day. So, um, I think there, there's definitely still some refinement to be done in our business model and, and who we are. But um, focusing in on the core of our business, the sweet spot has really been our partnerships with interior designers and architects. That really has been the wonderful creative process that comes from that. Um, the architects and interior designers that know us and have worked with us, you know, they they don't think twice the minute they have a client that is talking about local sustainability, social impact, ESG, you, you name it. It's like, Immediately, let's work with Goldfinger, and um, and it's such a joy to have these these long lasting relationships with individuals and companies that we've built over over the last ten years. We're coming to the end of our time, but kind of always the final question on these shows is is where do you think Goldfinger will go in the future? I mean, I'm, I'm kind of intrigued by how an organisation based around localism. I mean, how do you grow, or is I mean, is growth even important to you? I think, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a question we pose ourselves all the time. You know, what, what does growth look like for us? I mean, I think it's growth not for the sake of growth. It's growth to the point where it is a viable business model, and then it doesn't need to grow more. Can it be an inspiration? Can it be a model for other makers in other geographies to do the same? And then is there a kind of franchise model that perhaps allows a maker in New York to use New York locally felled trees to make some beautiful designs? So uh, a client there. So that's one avenue. It could be that Goldfinger just becomes a designer and we then manufacture with local manufacturers in different places all over the world. Or it just stays a London brand that is, as you say, based around localism and it's all about, you know, local, local, local or, you know, within the UK. There are many avenues that we're um, exploring and it's not yet clear which one, which one it will be. Interesting. I mean, in the immediate future, in fact, in the next few days when this is released... You'll have Material Matters, which we're delighted to have you on board. What will you be sharing there? You are so excited about the show. And we are going to be launching our new collection in collaboration with the Tate Modern. So that's super exciting. Designed in partnership with Holland Harvey Architects and the Tate. So it's called the Goldfinger Plus Tate Collection. There's I won't spoil it all, but there is there is a table, <laughs> there is a bench, there is a stool, and there is a surprise, a surprise element 
that is going to be part of this collection because those elements are also seen at Tate, but there will be some new and exciting things revealed at Material Matters. And so really hope to uh, meet lots of, I'm sure we're going to meet lots of great people and uh, so excited about that. Well, it sounds like a really good reason to visit. Uh, Marie, that was great. Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Grant. Real pleasure speaking to you. To find out more about Marie and Goldfinger, go to goldfinger.design. My thanks go to the series and fair headline sponsor, the brilliant lighting specialist, Bert Frank. You can find out more about them at bertfrank.co.uk. And you can see its products at the Material Matters Fair, which runs from the 20th to the 23rd of September at Barge House, Oxo Tower Wharf. It's free for trade, but it's vital that you register before you arrive. More information on that, to find the other podcasts that I've done, and to sign up to our newsletter, go to materialmatters.design. And as ever, there are images from the interviews on our Instagram page, materialmatters.design again. Finally, this is really important too. If you've enjoyed listening and want to see this podcast flourish, then please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this from. And it would make me incredibly happy if you went to my Patreon page and made a pledge at patreon.com forward slash material matters. For as little as £2.50 a month, you can receive an invite to the private view of the Material Matters Fair, as well as getting access to each episode before it's published to the wider world. Material Matters is a completely independent concern, and any help you could offer would be hugely appreciated. Ultimately, you'll be helping to take the message of the importance of materials, skill, craft and design to a whole new audience. Thanks very much for listening. 